Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Rachel, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we get started by having you tell us about your background and how you made your way into machine learning and AI? Sure. Yeah. So I studied math and computer science in college, uh, but I was really focused on kind of stuff that was as theoretical as possible. Um, I did a PhD in math, planning, planning to become a professor and then kind of changing my mind towards the end. And I stumbled into working into fi- in finance as a quant. And that's where I first kind of started working with data a lot um, and really enjoyed it. And so I read about data science being kind of this new field in tech. And yeah, moved to San Francisco and started working for tech startups. Um, I was an early engineer and data scientist at Uber. Um, and then I returned to teaching because I love teaching and always, I think, come back to it in some form and taught um, full stack software development to women at Hackbright. And then two years ago, Jeremy, Jeremy Howard and I started Fast AI with the goal of making deep learning more accessible and easier to use. This kind of brings together my enjoyment of machine learning as well as um, yeah trying to create a more more inclusive uh, inclusive field yeah and really make the field more accessible and at fast ai we do a mix of of research and education so our goal is we we teach a course uh, practical deep learning for coders it's available for free online and we want every time we teach it to be able to teach it to an even broader audience and have even better faster results um, and so part of that is you know building the libraries and tools we need to make that possible okay awesome well we'll dig into all of that before we do i will fess up to not having gone through the course yet it has been on my list and uh, I do plan to do it. And in fact, I'll throw this out there. If uh, anyone in the listening audience wants to do a uh, kind of a support group or a, a group for uh, going through the course, I will commit to doing it in June. So we can start in oh, June awesome. 1st, uh, on June 1st, I should say. And we've got a, uh, in our meetup, we've got a Slack channel. And I think I've I uh, already created a channel for doing the course because I'd hope to do it sooner. But if anyone wants to join me in getting started with it in June, you know, I think it'd be great to to do it as a group. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, I was going to say we have uh, one, we have forums, uh, forums.fast.ai. So definitely check those out for asking questions and getting help. Uh, but yeah, we really encourage people to find groups to to do it with because I know a lot of people, it really helps to have that that accountability and people to talk with as they're working through the course. And I know of a few different companies where groups have worked through the course together and, you know, like have lunch once a week to, to discuss how they're doing. Oh yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. There's also, this was program AI Saturdays that <laughs> we only found out about this after a while, but I think they're in like 60 countries and it's like people get together on Saturdays and in the morning they work through the course together. Oh, wow. Oh, it's very cool. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's AI Saturdays. Very cool. Uh, well, why don't we start by having you talk a little bit about the the course and the, go a little bit deeper into the motivation behind the course, what makes it unique relative to all of the other uh, courses that are out there, uh, and kind of how you see the the education landscape around deep learning. 
Sure. Yeah. So this this is the course that I wish had existed five years ago when I was first getting interested in deep learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of came with, I think, a lot of um, me and Jeremy's frustrations at the time with uh, kind of existing materials. Um, but a lot of resources for deep learning are either they're very theoretical. Um, and so, you know, they're not too accessible to people that don't have a graduate math background. And even as someone that did have a graduate math background, it was not that helpful for coding. You know, it was like, I want to build kind of like practical applications using this. And yeah, reading the theory wasn't that helpful to me. Um, we're starting to see, uh, I think, a lot more practical courses and tutorials out there, but many of them kind of settle for these I don't know, they work on toy problems and have like okay results, but we really wanted something that would get you to the state of the art and that you could use in the workplace and have state of the art results, um, but have it be super practical. So our course is distinctive in that there are no math prerequisites. The only prerequisite is one year of coding experience and it gets you to the state of the art. Something else that's uh, pretty unusual about it is uh, we use this top-down teaching approach. So most technical education is, uh, we call it bottom-up, but it's where you have to learn each individual like underlying component that you'll be using. And then, you know, eventually you can put them together to do something interesting. And this is, this is how math is taught as well. And so it's like for years, students are kind of like, what's the big picture? Why am I learning, you know, like all these little components? And you can do really awesome stuff later, but so many people lose the motivation when they don't have that big picture. And so our goal with the course is to get you training and training a model right away, like in three lines of code. And then as time goes on, we get into these underlying details. And so this is a lot more similar to how, say, sports or music are taught, where, you know, kids can be playing baseball, even if they don't know the formal rules, they might not have, you know, a full a full team or a full nine innings. And as they get older, older, they learn more rules. And so that's kind of what we're doing with deep learning is like show you how to use it. And then we explain how it works later. And that's kind of the opposite approach for many, uh, many courses. And there are two uh, courses, or at least two parts to the second version of the course. How are the two parts differentiated? Sure. Yeah. So uh, part one, uh, we call practical deep learning for coders. Um, and that kind of goes over a lot of, I guess, like core areas of, you know, like using conv- convolutional neural networks for um, image classification. We do a little bit of language with RNNs. Uh, we also do, uh, we cover how to work on tabular data, um, collaborative filtering. So for, uh, you know, making a predictions of, you know, like movie recommendations. Um, So that's all in part one, um, just kind of really to get you using the tools proficiently. And then part two is cutting edge, uh, cutting edge deep learning. And so that's a lot more, we teach you how to start reading and implementing papers. Oh, nice. And it's, yeah, it's exciting to see because we've had a lot of students are like, oh my gosh, this is so intimidating. You know, I did not think I would be able to like read one of these papers and implement it, but to have them have them doing that now. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll plan on uh, hitting part two as well this summer. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be releasing the updated version of that in the next month or two. So we just wrapped up the in-person version. So we kind of teach it in person and then we, we release it online. But that, that includes stuff like bounding boxes and GANs. We did some really neat stuff with language. Um, so using transfer learning to, to kind of use a language model um, for then text classification problems style transfer. Oh, very cool. 
Uh, and the course is offered both online and in person. What's the motivation behind doing the in-person course, given that you can reach so many people doing it online? Um, so I think with the in-person course, one, it's really helpful to have that kind of energy and feedback. Um, I think it's hard to record a course, you know, just in an empty room, but to, you know, be getting student questions. And and we often really get to know a lot of the students taking the in-person course. There's been a pretty good community around it. Um, the in-person course, I should say, it meets one evening a week in San Francisco. So most people taking the course are working full time. Um, most of them work in tech. Um, as part of the in-person course, we've also had two programs. Uh, we have diversity fellows. Um, and so this is to encourage more women, people of color and LGBTQ people um, to, to take the course. And that's really, I think, helped us get a more diverse audience, um, which is great. And then we also have an international fellows program. And that's people that are remote from all over the world, uh, but they are participating in the course in real time. Um, and so I think that those those have been really important components um, of the in-person course. Uh, one of the things that uh, I noticed not too long ago was uh, there were some announcements about the course shifting from, uh, actually, I forget the framework that it was using before. So version one, part one was in Keros, and then version one, part two was a blend of Keros and TensorFlow. I should say, yeah, we were using Keros on top of Theano for the like original version, and then we introduced some TensorFlow. Um, but then kind of last last summer when we started working on version two, we switched to PyTorch. And I, I guess actually now that I think about it, we had used some PyTorch in version one, part two, uh, because we found there was some stuff that was just almost impossible for us to do in TensorFlow. And so we had started using PyTorch. This was pretty soon after it released. And it was just, it was such a fun language to use and made a lot of things feel so much more intuitive and easier. So this year, yeah, that course was entirely in PyTorch, as well as a high-level API that we've written in our own library, FastAI, that sits on top of PyTorch. Uh, what were some of the things that were impossible to do in TensorFlow that you were able to do in PyTorch? Uh, so I remember we were having a lot of trouble with um, teacher forcing. Um, so this is in um, into natural language processing where, uh, oh, for, uh, for text, for a text model where you're trying to predict, you know, what the next word in a sentence will be. You initially, um, as you're training it, you want to give it the right answer um, initially. And then kind of with a probability, you want to be reducing the chance. Um, so since, you know, this is like, this is an RNN and you're, you know, you're predicting one word and then the next and then the next. Um, if you always give it what the actual next word is, the network is going to make kind of be more willing to make wild predictions because it's not going to like hurt it long term. Uh, but if you never give it, you can kind of get too, too off. And so that was something to be able to kind of um, have this probabilistic change happening while you're training that we found pretty difficult. Is that something the teacher forcing? Is that an issue around initialization or is it an issue around uh, labels or neither? It's, it's more, it's neither. It's more, more an issue on kind of how you're, you're training. Although I actually, I don't want to focus too much on that. I should say kind of like high level, like the big reasons we changed were one. Um, I think a key thing for me is PyTorch is easier to debug. And I think in any sort of, coding, just being able to debug easily is really important. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with TensorFlow, and so this TensorFlow has now released a dynamic version, but for 
you know, the first few years of its life, TensorFlow was just, um, you construct, it's called a, a static computation graph. Right. And so um, you're kind of constructing the graph and then you execute stuff on it. And so by the time you get an error, it can feel very removed from the line of code that actually caused that error. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas PyTorch is a dynamic graph. And so it's when you get an error, it's right at the line of code that caused it. Um, and so I think that's that feels much easier to debug. I should note that TensorFlow has released an early execution mode that is supposed to, that does this and is... Um, think more like PyTorch. Um, this is something I think that TensorFlow is having to play catch up to PyTorch. I think they kind of saw you know, like how successful PyTorch was uh, with the dynamic graph. And so I think TensorFlow is still still behind in this area. And it's tough because TensorFlow has such a huge code base that I think it's harder for them to be make nimble when they make changes. Right. right. Um, so that's sorry. So that's one area. Something else that's great about PyTorch is it's it's just written in kind of this um very standard Python object-oriented paradigm. And so I think for people that have done other Python programming or either other object-oriented programming in different languages, I think it feels a lot more natural and intuitive, um, just kind of how it's how it's structured. Uh, whereas TensorFlow has, it has a lot of TensorFlow-specific conventions that you have to learn around sessions and scope um, that don't yeah, just kind of aren't co- as commonly used in in other programming languages. And so, do you see PyTorch? And I, actually, I'll, I'll say one more okay, thing about <laughs> <laughs> that makes PyTorch great is um, so TensorFlow is a much larger library, and that can be difficult because it's like I don't know, there are like four four ways to do anything you want to do, whereas. PyTorch is kind of a much smaller set of features, but they were designed to be super flexible. And so it's very easy to kind of build build what you want because you have these very flexible pieces that you can combine well. Okay. And so do you think all those have made PyTorch a better choice for education, but you know maybe not as strong a choice for production use cases? Or do you think it's a, a solid choice for production as well? I think it's a solid choice for production as well. Um, I I think something to remember is in a lot of cases, you you don't need to be training in production. And so you can train a model and then kind of have your, um, really, you can just take your predictions and put them on like uh, an endpoint for, you know, if you have like a flask app or, you know, any other sort of of app, like you don't necessarily kind of need this, this machine learning component in um, in production when you're making your inferences, like you can just kind of like have that function, yeah, attached to something else. Um, mm-hmm. I think that yeah, TensorFlow, like if you, if, I mean, if you need to be doing deep learning on an edge device, yeah, TensorFlow is definitely um, way more developed for that. And if you're doing something at Google scale where you do want to be using yeah, it, but which I think very few people other than Google are. Um, so it's I think I think that PyTorch can yeah can be good for production for for most people. And to what degree has the the relative lack of you know library community contributed components and that kind of thing you know to what degree do you think that holds back PyTorch? Um, I mean I think I think something to remember is PyTorch is just I mean it's crazy to think it's uh, really I can't remember it's like. January or February 2017 that it came out. So it's really just a little bit more than a year. And so I think that they've made great progress in that time. It is still, yeah, this kind of very young project. Um, And I remember uh, when, 
You know, there was this, this point in time, I forget how long ago it was, um, but I remember this point in time where, you know, prior to, prior to, you know, the, the general sense was that TensorFlow had pretty much locked lock things up in terms of deep learning frameworks and all of a sudden PyTorch came out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and then I think you yeah, you I you all like piled on soon awesome. after that. <laughs> I feel like Google has just spent so much on marketing TensorFlow uh-huh. that it's hard. Like I and mean, they just have really, really marketed TensorFlow. Cause I feel like I talked to so many people that like don't do deep learning, have never used TensorFlow, but they've heard about it and they think it's great because they've but it like what they've heard sounds like mostly kind of like marketing from Google. <laughs> uh, so I think that, that has <laughs> that has really impacted or kind of skewed um, skewed things towards making TensorFlow seem more popular. Or I mean, this is also hard to remember. You know, Keras. You know, it's been incorporated into core TensorFlow now, but it, that was not originally a part of of TensorFlow. And so yeah, like part very first version of our course, like we were using Keras on top of Theano. Um, although yeah, Theano has now been been deprecated the space is changing so quickly what it do is you, it is yeah do you feel like it's it's stabilized or do you think no, it could change I, any day now i think i think it will continue changing jeremy actually wrote in our blog post last year when we announced we were switching to pytorch that basically everyone working in the field should assume we'll have to switch languages and frameworks a few more times because <laughs> it's just it's just going to keep changing possibly that sounds really scary for, you know, putting on my enterprise hat, someone that wants to start, you know, really building, uh, you know, real stuff and, and, and you know, business critical functionality, uh, the fluidity. What do you think about efforts like Onyx and some of these other things that are trying to create, you know, either portability between frameworks or cross compilation to, you know, different frameworks and hardware and that kind of thing. I am not as familiar with those, but from what I know, I think that's a a great idea. Yeah. And I meant to bring up Onyx earlier as another potential solution to someone that's working in PyTorch and wants to, wants to deploy to production. Yeah, no, I think those are good efforts. And yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I said that it's changing a lot. I mean, I think that there, (laughs) you know, if you want to be doing this stuff in production, like you absolutely can and should be right now. Like, don't feel like it's uh, everything's going to change tomorrow. Um, but I think I think there's something exciting about being in a relatively young field um, that is is so dynamic and where you know a lot of the changes we're seeing are you know are these huge improvements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned that in addition to the course. There's also a fast AI library that you distribute and use in the course. And I've recently seen you uh, publish some benchmarks that I think have something to do with that library. Can you talk about the the library and its purpose sure, and the yeah. benchmarks? Yeah. And so the library, the goal of it, and I should also put the disclaimer, we need to release more documentation about around it. And that's something that we're <laughs> working on right now and we'll be, we'll be coming out uh, this summer. Um, but the, the goal of the library was to um, kind of give a high-level API and encode, um, and also to encode kind of a lot of uh, best practices and smart defaults. Um, like, I think something that can be overwhelming 
like when you're first learning deep learning and the kind of the impression that you get from it, some places are, you know, there are just so many hyper parameters and it's like, oh my gosh, I've got all these hyper parameters. What do I choose and how do I tune those? Um, and so we really just kind of wanted to make it easier and give you um, good defaults. And so if you want, you can have to really just think about like one hyper parameter. And then, you know, later on, if there's more stuff you want to change, that's easy to do as well. Um, and to, yeah, kind of have nice high level abstractions. Um, so that was the goal with the library. Um, and so it's, it's a great teaching tool, but I think it's also a good, um, a good thing to use in practice. And you mentioned um, our benchmarks. And so this was part of Stanford, the, the Stanford Dawn Lab hosted a competition called Stanford Dawn Bench. And so this was for um, there are two categories, ImageNet and Cypher 10, which are these classic image classification problems. Um, however, typically, you know, like the ImageNet um, competition was about being most accurate. This was about being fastest and cheapest. And, mm. you know, there was a baseline. You had to be at least 93% accurate. But uh, past that point, yeah, what was fastest and cheapest? Sounds and a so lot like the- uh, TPC benchmarks, if you're familiar with those. I am not. I think it's it's not TPS. That's the office based thing. <laughs> it's a <laughs> transaction processing council. It's like they do uh, transaction per second benchmarks across like you know big iron. And uh, there was a point in time where commodity computers, uh, clusters of commodity compute, started to supplant the you know the big expensive monolithic hardware boxes. And it sounds like from just kind of casually seeing some of the tweets and stuff about your benchmarks that that's kind of what you, you know, what some of your results were about. Well, so what we found, um, so for the Cypher 10, which is a smaller data set, although I think it's a, it's a size that's more, I think it's like 160 megabytes that is, is representative of what a lot of businesses and companies have. Um, We were, uh, we won both, uh, both sections fastest and cheapest Uh, for the image nets. These are, larger data set is like 160 gigabytes. Uh, we were the fastest on publicly available infrastructure, fastest on GPUs, fastest on a single machine, and lowest actual cost. And I should say this was um, this was uh, Jeremy working with a group of our fast AI students who kind of have this in-person study group that's been meeting every day. Um, but I think it was really exciting to prove that um, the fast AI library um, you know, it was super helpful to this. And so, I mean, this was, you know, it's like Fast AI Library, which is built on top of PyTorch. We were using NVIDIA GPUs on AWS, um, AWS spot instances. Um, but a lot of, so like Google and Intel, like their general strategy in this competition was kind of just having way more hardware. Um, and we really tried to approach it as, kind of using more algorithmic creativity because kind of a core, I think, part of our mission and like the thesis we're trying to prove with fast AI is that deep learning can be accessible to people from all backgrounds and that you don't have to, you know, be able to afford like these very, uh, very expensive clusters of machines and that you don't, you know, you don't need to have a PhD from Stanford. And so here, you know, this was a group of like, part-time students and <laughs> we're trying to try to do things cheaply. Real um, David and Goliath story. And yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Our, um, we, we had an entry on a single machine that was faster than Intel's entry on a cluster of 128 machines. Oh, wow. Um, and so, and some of what we were doing here was just, yeah, kind of being, um, 
creative with our algorithms and also using, I don't know, in the deep learning community, there's some results that have really kind of been neglected because they're not from, <laughs> there's a lot of attention in the community to, you know, like what is Stanford doing? What is OpenAI doing? And, you know, these people that kind of have this name cachet or recognition um, and so part of what we were doing was kind of implementing results from other people that are at these, you know, less famous or less prestigious institutions. Oh, nice. Uh, and showing like, hey, you know, we can we can use this to to get to get fast results. How would you attribute the benefits, the performance, the ability to to run at low cost between the fast AI library and PyTorch? In other words, were you competing against other PyTorch-based oh, entrants? Yeah, who, who gets, yeah. So I, I know the Google team was definitely using TensorFlow. Um, and I'm pretty sure Intel was using TensorFlow as well. Um, or even what yeah, about so the structure? Tell us about the structure I mean, of I, the I, task. Really, and I, the think, ex- I think some of the, the key <laughs> things were, and, and, there, and it's interesting, the stuff we were implementing, they're actually not that complicated as ideas. So one of them is this idea of super convergence. Um, and this is something that Leslie Smith, who works at the Naval, uh, Naval Research Laboratory, found. Um, but it's the idea that you can use way higher learning rates if you um, lower your momentum. And momentum is kind of a factor uh, used in, in optimization of, um, you know, there are all these variants on stochastic gradient desa- descent. Mm-hmm. And so um, momentum is kind of a commonly used part of that. And I don't know of anybody else lowering though the the momentum part um, uh, dynamically as training happens. So backing and off the, momentum as you're converging. As, well, as, well, and actually, it's um, <laughs> it's backing off momentum as you're increasing your learning rate to these high rates, and then you decrease your learning rate again and increase your momentum. So kind of keeping um, you kind of have this triangle shape with both, and they're like inversely related. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it's like, and in, and you can check that we have a blog post where we kind of write some mo- more details about what we were doing. But yeah, it was like learning rates increasing while momentum's decreasing, and then learning rate decreases while momentum increases. Um, but that, um, yeah, allows for much faster training. And so here, you know, this is something that these are things that the combination of fast AI and PyTorch made very easy to implement and having, you know, having that kind of um, dynamic change as you're learning is something that is typically harder to do in TensorFlow. Um, So this was, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of hard to talk about (laughs) fast AI and, you know, it's, it's the flexibility of PyTorch that made, um, made fast AI possible. And, you know, fast AI is fairly flexible as well since it's, it's written on PyTorch. Um, So so that was one component. And then there was this other idea of, of um, progressive resizing, where you start out training your network on small versions of your images, um, which makes sense, Paul. It's kind of just trying to learn, you know, like very, very rough, uh, rough things. And then as, uh, as training happens, you're using kind of uh, larger and larger versions of the images. Um, and so again, yeah, like PyTorch is great to kind of have that, that dynamic um, dynamic nature. Oh, that sounds really interesting as well. Yeah. And this is, this is also something I think it's exciting because it's like the, the ideas on their own, like are not, you know, it's not like this, I don't know, like 
complicated thing of math equations, you know, it's, you know, it's like, hey, this makes sense, you know, intuitively of like start training on small images and then train on larger ones. And, you know, it's also like that way your network kind of has information about images of different sizes. Um, and so those are, you know, a lot of a lot of the breakthroughs and Jeremy points this out in the blog post, a lot of these breakthroughs that have really helped us in deep learning, you know, things like using rectified linear units um, for activations and drop out where you kind of randomly drop a lot of uh, a lot of your weights to avoid overfitting each time or batch normalization. They're actually fairly simple ideas and they made things um, in some ways like easier to understand while at the same time really improving the performance of neural networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we really think a lot of the breakthroughs are going to come by kind of, the, you know, this new insight where you can like do something differently um, and not just from getting bigger and bigger clusters of computers. Interesting. And to what extent do you think the techniques that were used in the benchmark are, you know, practical techniques? In other words, um, are they kind of not gaming the benchmark with a, with a negative connotation, but were they kind of designed to, you know, compete well in the benchmark, but not something that you would necessarily do in practice or, you know, are they no, all things are, that are you would practical. totally. Yeah. Okay. That there are all things you could do in practice. Okay. And, and some of them do still kind of raise issues. Uh, so one issue that we ran into, and I think is a kind of understudied issue in the field is that how to best use multiple GPUs. I think often people, they kind of release with new GPUs, you know, like how many calculations can be done on them, how quickly, uh, but that doesn't take into account that like training your network really changes when you go from one GPU to many GPUs. And so you don't necessarily, you don't, well, you don't get the the speed up of, you know, going from one GPU to eight GPUs does not mean you're going to do stuff eight, eight times faster. And so this is an area where I think that definitely needs to be more research done on kind of how do you get the get the most out of going from yeah one GPU to multi GPUs. Did you do anything with uh, with low precision in this in this particular benchmark? We did, yes. And so, and this is um, key to um, Nvidia's new Volta architecture was key to this because it gives you half precision um, floating point data, and this was something that I guess Nvidia had provided an open source demonstration. And then we had a student that worked on this to incorporate the ideas into fast AI. And this is Andrew Shaw. Um, but the kind of the issue is that so half precision, you know, is kind of letting you do stuff um, using less space, but you do need to convert to, to full pre- precision for some of the steps. Um, so like when you multiply by your learning rate. Um, but so that's something we've got, we've got implemented now. Yeah, that's something that I, I have the sense gets glossed over a bit in NVIDIA's presentations about this. It's not like flipping a half, a, you know, a, a low precision switch and everything gets yeah, faster. Yeah, you have to really dig into. Yeah, because you have to think about where, you know, where is it useful and not going to hurt you? Yeah. Versus, okay, like, where are the places where you need full precision? And I think, I mean, I think that happens in a lot of um, kind of talking about hardware specs, of course, you know, because you're just like, you know, focused on this piece. And, you know, deep learning is this, you know, system that's got so many components and thinking about how does it work, work as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so where where do you see the library going? Is it still evolving quickly? Is it? Uh... Yes, yes, it's still evolving quickly. 
I, mean, I think we definitely still, like even coming from the competition, have a few more things we need to, to get um, get incorporated. And then we also, we really want to work on documentation and usability uh, in terms of for new users. I think if you're, you know, working through the course, uh, that really gives you a lot of a lot of information and context of kind of seeing how things are built. Uh, but we want to, yeah, kind of make it even more, more user-friendly beyond that. And we'll continue, um, you know, as we as we teach the course and as new papers come out, I think, to, and, and as we're doing more research, um, you know, that gives us kind of more ideas of things to implement. And do you see it primarily as uh, an educational tool or something that yeah. uh, someone would use? Um, yes, we see it as something that would be useful in the workplace. Okay. And is the, to what extent, I mean, you kind of addressed this in introducing it, but, you know, when I think of higher level abstractions, I, I certainly get the notion of, um, you know, saving folks that are new to the field from a lot of the details, but that saving, you know, usually comes from hiding, which can be a bit of an impediment to education and, and understanding. How do you balance those two? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I mean, some of it is this, you know, this top down teaching approach I described earlier of like, yeah, like initially we are hiding a lot of things, but I think having the code written in such a way that it like, we definitely then get into the details later on. And it is written in a way that like makes it um, easy for people to customize. And if they need to modify things on a, on a lower level, they can do so. Um, and so like our goal with the library is to kind of be providing both of those. And this is also, I mean, I think this is something that PyTorch is good at as well. Um, but that if, yeah, if you want to, you know, add something to the library or change how it's doing something, like there are places to add custom hooks and um, to use, uh, I think the library is constructed to make that that easy and, and reasonable. And is the idea that you would you know, maybe use the library as a wrapper to some things that you don't want to, you know, mess with the details about. But then, you know, when you want to dig into those details, you would not use the library and go straight to PyTorch? Or is there a... I mean, I think it's, um, I think you would continue to use the library. It would more just be if you needed to change some, I don't know, if you're running some experiments, you know, you're a researcher kind of doing your own thing. Um, you can, or you're, you know, you're trying out a new architecture that maybe then you would need to um, to dip into changing some of the details. But I think that um, our goal is to have it. And you know, I think part of what this competition showed is that the the library itself is achieving state of the art results. And so it's not that it's going to hurt your performance or something to be using this high level library. Right. Uh, so the performance and costs objectives of this benchmark are clearly important, particularly as folks are running these types of workloads, not just on machines that are sitting on their desk, but in the cloud where they're paying uh, for them by the minute or hour. Right, right, yeah. Um, but another key, uh, often maybe overlooked uh, benchmark or metric is around productivity and, and the ability to iterate mm. and innovate quickly. Yeah. Is anyone, yeah. are there any benchmarks for that? It's harder to do. I yeah, but- I don't how you would benchmark that. I mean, I would, I would say like, it's almost a bit of a meme on Twitter of a lot of people saying that like they have to, they use TensorFlow for their jobs, but they use PyTorch for their experimentation. Um, 
<laughs> um, so like that's what they're doing in the evenings. And I mean, I mean, there are plenty of companies using PyTorch as well, but just that I think that's part of the reason people loved PyTorch is it's so easy to iterate mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of experiment the way you're, you're talking about. Because I, I think, you know, there are people that will say like, oh, you know, computation graphs, like theoretically, that's letting the compiler optimize more. So you should get better performance with a, or sorry, with a static computation graph than with dynamic. But it's just, that's not what people have found in practice. And I think part of that is with, um, with the dynamic framework, you're able to iterate so much quicker. So you do end up kind of getting better performance. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know of any benchmarks that are, are formally, <laughs> formally setting the distinction. Okay. Uh, so one of the often cited barriers to folks getting into this field is the level of math that's required. And uh, one of the things that, that you've done personally to try to address this is develop a class uh, on linear algebra, computational linear algebra in particular. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So computational linear algebra. So this is a course I teach in the master's program at USF, but I've released all the videos and notebooks online. Um, So it's the study of getting matrix, uh, sorry, getting computers to do matrix calculations with acceptable speed and acceptable accuracy. And so I would say whether or not you have taken or liked um, kind of traditional linear algebra, this is a very different field because uh, a traditional linear algebra course is typically, you know, having students kind of do these matrix computations by hand, which is just like a whole different set of considerations from when you're getting a computer to do them. Um, But one of the kind of key themes of the course is the idea of decomposing matrices um, as you can think of this as kind of analogous to, you know, like you can factor a number into primes and that's useful, you know, because, you know, primes have this special property. Uh, the same idea with matrices, you can kind of factor them into component matrices that have special properties. And so the, the course is, um, it's similar teaching philosophy to the deep learning course and that it's um, all, it's very code-based, it's all in Jupyter Notebooks, and it's all centered around applications. And so applications we look at are um, removing the background from a, um, a surveillance video of you know, identifying what's foreground and background, topic modeling for a corpus of documents, um, kind of digging into you know, uh, Google's PageRank um, algorithm, because that's actually a matrix decomposition. Um, and so kind of going uh, singular value decomposition, which is used for um, compressing data. It's also used for, um, you can remove errors. There's a really, a really neat example of um, kind of a highly corrupted data set where there's just all these errors in the picture and you can actually remove it and kind of find what the underlying picture probably was of uh, this is of people's faces. Um, so yeah, the course is very kind of application focused, but yeah, computational linear algebra includes a lot of things like approximate algorithms or randomized algorithms, you know, like often you, you know, like what are the cases where you don't need to be super precise or even, you know, often your data only has so much precision. So it doesn't make sense to, you know, try to get a, an algorithm that's going to give you something accurate to the the 10th decimal place. Um, it also looks at, you know, issues around um, machine epsilon and the kind of errors that can get introduced through, through computer calculations. And what's machine epsilon? Um, and so that's just, uh, so the way, you know, it's like numbers are infinite and continuous and it's like computers are, you know, finite and limited. Uh, so and floating so point way, representation yeah, noise. Floating point representation. Exactly. Okay. 
Well, that sounds like a really interesting class too. So this is how my uh, classes to take lists gets really long. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, so this one isn't a structured class, but you've published all the materials online. Yeah, all the materials online. So yeah, on GitHub are all the Jupyter notebooks and then all the videos are, are on YouTube. Oh, that sounds very cool. I feel like I've been talking a lot about like why I like PyTorch more than TensorFlow. Um, but I did want to bring up that I think TensorFlow has some really neat developments happening. And so I'm definitely still um, keeping my eye on TensorFlow. Um, I think they, so they, um, Chris Latner announced at the TensorFlow Dev Summit two months ago that they're going to be releasing um it's Swift for TensorFlow. And so, you know, Swift is the language that Chris mm -hmm. Latner invented for iOS development. And actually, I um, spent several months, of, uh, I guess, in 2015, kind of like learning Swift and learning how to build mobile apps. And it, and it's, it is a really neat language um, that they're going to be kind of having a version of that. So it's like a whole other language um, that would um uh, but but would be it would not be just for iOS and it's you know specifically for neural networks this uh, Swift for TensorFlow version that's something that really interests me um, and then it was kind of exciting to hear some of um, the the new releases like they now have a Tensor um, JavaScript version of TensorFlow which is I think really great uh, they have released uh, these Google Colab notebooks where you can kind of like basically launch, yeah, these interactive examples. So I, I felt bad that I was um, perhaps criticizing TensorFlow earlier where, when I do think that there are some interesting developments happening happening there. Yeah, I think there's no question that Google's making some tremendous contributions with TensorFlow and the, that broader ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, right now we're, we're using PyTorch for the course and, you know, there are things I love about PyTorch, but I'm definitely not, um, in general, I'm not into like, you know, saying like, hey, this is the language I'm always going to use. I hate other languages or anything. You know, it's you want to recognize kind of what each language is contributing and, and be flexible. Uh, so should we move on to Vim versus Emacs now? <laughs> <laughs> I am um, on Twitter on Twitter recently. I, I just did this poll about what would you call this type of data? <laughs> <laughs> it got more comments and engagement than like I think anything else I've ever tweeted. <laughs> it was like asking asking programmers to name something. Yeah, is uh, tabs and spaces anyone? Yeah, <laughs> generated nice. a lot of debate. <laughs> nice, nice, awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on, or or any final parting words for the audience? Definitely, I just want to encourage people to check out the the deep learning course. That's at course.fast.ai. Absolutely, and if uh, if anyone who's listening wants to uh, join me in going through the course starting the beginning of June, uh, either hit me up on Twitter or via the twimlai.com website, or just go ahead and join our meetup, and you'll get an invitation to our Slack channel. And just chime in there and we will we will get it going. Great. No, I think it's awesome that you're doing that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Rachel. Oh, thank you, Sam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Rachel or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 138. Remember, the Twimmel online meetup is tomorrow. And starting in June, 
we'll be organizing a group to take the Fast AI Practical Deep Learning course. Don't miss either and sign up for both at twimlai.com slash meetup. Okay, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.